Greetings to each one in the worthy name of Jesus. You can turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Nahum. That is in the near the back of the Minor Prophets. If you go to Matthew and go backwards, you'll probably soon find it. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. This title was assigned to me, and I was blessed by this. I'd like to share uh, this here with us this morning. So Nahum is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There's 12 of them. When we say minor prophets, it doesn't mean that they're less important. It just means that they're smaller in size, shorter in length. Either The Bible says either they were a prophet, a true prophet, or a false prophet was determined by whether what they prophesied came true or not. <clears throat> and we'll see in our book study this morning that we will see his prophecy came uh, true to the team. Now, Nahum, the first verse, chapter one, first verse, we want to go through the three chapters, and the title this morning could be an overview of the book of Nahum. So Nahum is the author in chapter one, verse one, says the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. So Elkosh, or uh, he says Nahum is the author, and he was from Elkosh, and that is in uh, northern Iraq. The uh, so there we see uh, today. If you could go to Elkosh in Iraq, this is just north of Nineveh, north of the town of uh, Mushul, and you will find the town, the tomb of Nahum. It's there. The one, the picture on the left is the uh, tomb, and the picture on the right is a recent renovation. They just did it in the last five years or so as a recent renovation done. They built a, built a, there was a building over the tomb, and, uh, and it's very interesting. If you want to look that up, you can Google the uh, tomb of Nahum, and they did it in secret. They didn't tell anybody because until after it was done because of where they were in Iraq. But the book here is the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. So we see it says the book of the vision. I believe he wrote in a book what he saw, just like John wrote in a book what he saw. And he's recording, it's almost like in real time, very accurate. He's writing down what God is going to do to Nineveh. And the theme of the book is God's judgment against Nineveh. That's all this book is about, God's judgment against Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is a, here's a little picture painted, uh, sort of to give us an idea. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and it's in north, north Iraq. Uh, that city was, they had a wall around the city that was 17 miles long. Uh, so it was a three square mile city. These walls were 100 foot. They could ride three chariots wide around these walls. There was towers on the wall. And there was a moat, as you can see there, around the city. That was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. And God calls this city a great city, <clears throat> the city of Nineveh. There's a topical view. There you can see there's uh, the 15 gates, and that's the wall, 17 miles. And you'll notice... Just for later reference, the two rivers. There's a Tigris River on the left side, and the Kosher River goes right through the city. And this will become interesting as we look at the destruction, how God uh, allowed the enemy to come in. So the date is not sure. It doesn't tell us the date. It tells us in here that of a, a, the city of Thebes that was overtaken, and that happened in 661, and we know that Nineveh was destroyed in 612. So it gives us a very, uh, we don't know exactly time, but it's believed that he would have prophesied here during King Manasseh, or maybe Josiah's time right after him. So it makes, would make sense that possibly he prophesied after the revival that, of Josiah. They got this message from God. When, they, when the revival happened. But this is bad news. This is a book of doom for Nineveh. 
bad news for Nineveh, but it's good news for the children of Israel, for Judah. Now, at this point, the northern kingdom was already taken captivity. That happened in 722, but the southern kingdom was not in captivity at this point. Now, Nahum means comfort or compassion. So his message of doom was not that to Nineveh, but it was that to the children of Israel. It comforted the people of Judah. They were under the thumb of Assyria. They were under taxes, and Assyria, as we're going to see, was really cruel, and they were ruthless and barbaric, and they weren't going to be affected by them anymore. God was going to let the Babylonians come in and wipe them out, wipe them off the map. God says that he was going to come in, and he's going to come in like a whirlwind, and they're going to be destroyed. He says that they will be Their name shall no more be sown. They'll be cut off. And that was exactly what happened. It's so much the case that it lay waste for 2,500 years until archaeologists have found the site where it was in northern Iraq. So Nahum's prophecy came true to the T. It even mentions the colors of the armies. Their uniforms, like the Babylonians were the red and the the Medes were the scarlet, to the T. So now we'll remember this book here is a sequel to Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah, how he went to Nineveh. And that's where Jonah led this revival. So we could call this the sequel to Jonah or Jonah part two. Now we study Jonah a lot more than we do Nahum. And I'm not sure why. When we, got, when we look at this, this is the, the ending of Nineveh. Now, Jonah was that reluctant prophet. You know, Jonah would have probably rather been Nahum. You know, Jonah's message when he went was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. But they weren't because they repented. And their repentance was for real. I mean, there hasn't been a revival like that since. Uh, where the king, the whole city repented. The king put on sackcloth and ashes and ordered all the others to do so. And he said, just maybe God will relent from sending judgment. And that judgment that God said was going to come did not come because the people repented, because of the repentance. Now we're going to fast forward 100 plus years. We don't know the exact amount of years here, but it's over 100 years and these people, at this time, they, were, they forgot about Jonah. They forgot about God's mercy. They forgot about uh, the, re- the judgment that was, was relented. We could call them the city that forgot God. You know, the enemy doesn't want us, need to get us to hate God. Just forget him. Just forget him. That's all it takes. So here we see that the, uh, the people have gone back to their wicked ways and sin is in full bloom. And once again, the Lord is coming to speak to Assyria, Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. And the judgment of the Lord is coming. And in verse 14, we'll get to it. It says, and you will fall. It's an edict that's coming. And it did just as Nahum prophesied. God gave this edict when they were strong, their military was strong and they were very popular, but you know, they were gone overnight. So I don't know how many years after Nahum had this message, this prophecy came, was it where they destroyed? Was it three years? Was it 10 years? And there's varied opinions on how long it was, but it doesn't matter. The message is the same. So the theme of the book is the judgment of God against Nineveh. So this morning, we have three points, and they're very simple. We're going to look at number, chapter 1 is the who, chapter 2 is the how, and chapter 3 is the why. The three points. First, we're going to look at the who, the judge, God. And then we're going to look at how this judgment came. And then we're going to look at why the judgment came. And it's all laid out in this, in this book. Now, interestingly, uh, Nahum starts out with the judge here, and it's talking about God. In verse 2, let's read verses 2 and 3. 
It says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth and the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will, at, will not at all quit the wicked. And I'll stop there. But here he's naming a few of his attributes. God is saying, you could say, God is saying these first verses here, who, who I am. God is saying, let me first tell you who I am. The first verses that he's talking about, it's a powerful appearance of God in his glory. You know, knowing God is important in understanding his judgment. You know, as we read the prophets, as we read these minor prophets, we, can under, we get to know God better. We get to know who he is. And he starts out by saying, uh, he starts out by saying that God is jealous. God is jealous. He takes a line from the uh, Ten Commandments and also the Golden Calf Incident. When we think of jealousy, we think of in the human terms, you know, like env envious and selfish. But God, God's different places says he is jealous. Now, I remember one time when our children were small, they asked, you know, how can God be jealous? You know, you think of it in the negative terms. Well, one, at bedtime one time, I said, well, you know, you, as, as you know, I read bedtime stories to our children, and uh, I said, it'd be like if I would go over to your cousins and read them stories. How would you feel about that? Well, they didn't, they didn't think that would be right because you know, d children deserve dad's time for bedtime stories, not their cousins. And well, that's a good part of jealousy. You're, je it's, you're jealous for what belongs to you. And that's exactly what God, God is jealous for what belongs to him. It has the idea of being zealous or zealous for his glory, for his holiness. Here's the verses right out of uh, Exodus. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and the fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So here God says he's jealous. Jealous. You know, God isn't worried about other rivals, these other gods being a rival to him. That's not at all what he's worried about. He wants our affection. He, he doesn't want our affection to go to these other gods or to these other idols or to serve ourselves. He wants us to serve him alone. He wants to be the, the master passion of our lives. And if we allow anything else to come in and be a substitute, uh, He's displeased, and this displeasure is described here as jealousy. So for chasing other gods, chasing other things, he's jealous. Then he'll come in second, and he that's not okay. This jealousy leads to vengeance. In uh, Ephesians, it talks about, because of these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. This jealousy leads to vengeance, and there's a day of judgment coming. God, it says in verse 3, he will not acquit the wicked. He will not let the wicked go unpunished. And God is an advocate of true justice, we see here. He will not bring justice immediately. It tells us here that he's very patient and he's long-suffering. Uh, he's he's, he's uh, slow to anger. He gave Nineveh 100, over 100 years' time to repent. You know, from the time of, of uh, Jonah's preaching until the fall of Nineveh was 148 years. We know that. 148 years. That would be, to bring it in perspective, that would be like from the Civil War to, the, to today. You know, this was, that's a long period of time. We can, read the, uh, we can read Jonah and Micah and Nahum, what, in a half an hour or less. And, and we can think that God moved quick 
But no, he didn't. It actually happened over a long period of time. 148 years, they had the light. You know, God's wrath is like a kettle of water on a kitchen stove. You know, how long can a kettle of water, it can simmer there a long time. And then all of a sudden, it'll, it's, it boils over. And then it's, 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 it, it, it reaches the boiling point. It's, it's too late. It just boils over. And the boiling point is in the Bible is described as the day of wrath. The day of wrath. You know, nothing is going to turn it away. The repentance can turn that when it's simmering, you know, it can, God's wrath can be turned away with repentance. And we see that in Jonah's time. But for different nations and for different people, the, it has boiled over. And we're going to see, and for the, for the whole world, there, there is a, a day of wrath coming. And this describes a day of wrath coming here in Revelations chapter 6 and verse 15, when people would rather have rocks fall on them than face God's wrath. And here's the verse. It talks about all the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains and all the mighty men and even the bondmen and every free man. They hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? You know, it comes a time when it's too late. And we're going to see here in Nineveh that the clock struck 12. The last verse in, Nineveh, in the book of Nahum, it says, there was in the last verse here, it says, there's no healing of thy bruise, there, thy wound is grievous. And it, was, it means that there, there, it was too late, it was over. It was, there was no remedy. You know, they, they, you're thinking about Nineveh, they had the light, they responded to the light, and now they're refusing the light. And God will judge and bring vengeance and, and retribution upon sinners who do not repent. He will not acquit the wicked. God will not let the wicked go unpunished. He won't do it. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So it says here that we are not to avenge ourselves. We're not allowed to set the score straight. That's God's place. He's saying, and he will. And we see that he did here with Nineveh. That's an example to us that he will. Vengeance is an expression of God's wrath, and it's for God alone. It's not for us. He tells us not to do it. He says, uh, he instructs us here not to uh, avenge not ourselves. He instructs us in the, in the Sermon of the Mount to never pay evil for evil. But here he says, give, rather give place unto wrath. That means that we need to move aside so God can do his work. So he can take care of it. And he will take care of it in his time and in his way. It's not for us. We don't know how. We might think we know how to set scores straight. We don't know how. We, uh, you know, and, and let me explain. <clears throat> The Bible says here that God is slow to anger, and we can see that many places through the Bible. God is slow to anger, and if you take the opposite of that in man, we are tend to be quick to anger. We tend to jump, we're, we, that we, can, we can flare up and get angry quick. But now God can be merciful and angry at the same time. And man, we can't do that. God has a perfect balance that we don't have. God can be, we can see God's mercy right in his, with his, his uh, justice. You know, he, he, he can be slow to anger and he can be furious at sin at the same time. And that talks, the Bible talks about his kindness and his severity. Uh, he, can, he, he can be, uh, you know, when I get angry, mercy is just out the back door. But God is, you can see his mercy in his wrath. He is slow to anger. With God, his mercy and wrath can be present at the same time, and it's only God that can do this. So we need to let it to God. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. The fact that God is slow to anger gives time, man time to repent. Familiar verse. God is long-suffering, not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. You know, think about it. God, who is all-knowing, he would know 
like in Jonah's time, that their revival would have been short-lived and they would be back in their sin so quickly. He could have said, well, why bother sending Jonah? Let's just wipe them out now and just save a little time. But no, that's not who God is. That's not who God is. We're looking at the who. God is the judge, and he is an almighty God that has perfect balance. Now, also, we, we're going to see here in verses 4 and 6 that he is sovereign in nature. We're looking at, still looking at the judge. Does God have the power to judge? Just look at the power in nature, his sovereignty in nature. You know, it talks about the uh, whirlwind in the end of verse 3. The, uh, the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds that are the dust of his feet. You know, he's great in power. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. There's nothing that he cannot do. We're reminded over and over again of the power of Almighty God. And here it gives us four word pictures here that remind us of the power of Almighty God. And the first one is the tornado. We're going to see a word picture here of drought earthquakes, and, and a volcano. There in verse uh, 3, he describes a tornado. The clouds are the dust of his feet. The, the wind, the whirlwind, and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And we see the drought. He describes in verse 4, he rebuked the sea and makes it dry and dryeth it up all the rivers. And number, in verse 5, we see the earthquake. The mountains quake at him. And verses uh, 5 and 6 talks about a, a volcano. The, her, the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, all the world that, is in the, that dwells therein. And then verse 6, it says, His fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. So here's pictures of Almighty God. God is sovereign in nature. He, is so he created it. He sustained it. He, calmed, he can calm the storm by just saying the word. And then in verse 6, we have the, uh, 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 a verse here that says, Who can stand? If omnipotent God controls the forces of nature, how can mere man with unrepented sin withstand the wrath of God? And then we have the verse here we find in Hebrews, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then we go on and we see the Lord is good. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. And here we have a verse, you know, of a, a promise. The Lord is good. He's true. God is good. It's true. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. It might be hard for us to see at times, especially in a storm, in the middle of a difficulty. You know, and our faith can be weakened during this time. But we, re we need to remember that God is there. God is good, and, uh, and that's for the children of Israel at that time, going through the, all the Assyrian atrocities. God was saying he's good. He's there for them. For those, at the end of that verse, it says, for those that trust him. It's a, con it's a conditional promise. It's a promise for those who trust God. You see, it's either we trust God or we're trusting ourselves. And this promise was for those that trust God. And he says there, he knows them who trust him. He doesn't have to be told who they are. He knoweth them. So God knows the children of Israel who trusted him through all the uh, Assyrian atrocities and the same today. Do I trust God when I'm wrong, when I'm taken advantage of, when I'm in a difficult situation? Do I trust him? Do I know he is good? And do I let vengeance in his hand? Or do I want to try to set the score straight myself? We're looking at the who. Almighty God with perfect balance. Perfect balance of justice and mercy. You know, it's the same God. It's, uh, you know, he's described as jealous on the one side, avenging, wrathful, and hating sin. And on the other side, he is slow to anger, merciful, long-suffering, and great in power. It's the same hand that extended the mercy is the same hand that's extending the judgment. Almighty God with perfect balance. That's the who. Now we want to look at the how. How is this judgment going to come? How is this, how is this, city, this great city of Nineveh going to be destroyed? Nahum describes the fall 
very vividly. And we're not going to be able to read all the verses, but basically he's talking about two things, and it's going to be by a flood and by a fire. In verse, uh, in verse 8, in 1 verse 8, it talks about the overwhelming flood. And in, verses, in, verse, in chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, The gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. So here, and that's exactly what happened. If we remember, the, the uh, Kosher River came right through the city. And the Tigris River was there. And the floodwaters came and destroyed several miles of that wall. You know, just like Nahum prophesied. So some, some think maybe they dammed it up and, and these floodwaters came in. And others, uh, commentaries say that it was probably a thunderstorms. But however it happened, it happened like Nahum said. The wall, it was washed out and the palace thereof. In verse 6, the gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. And when they found, when they, uh, when they dug up the, the archaeologists, uh, dug, uh, they, they found a, the, the wall was undermined. They, they saw evidence of this is exactly what happened. So God can use nature to accomplish his purpose, his sovereign plan. And that wall, taking that wall down gave the enemy the entrance to come in and overtake them. And also we see a fire in verse 10, the fire of dry thorns that burned like stubble. So here was the fire, and, uh, and we see that's two pictures in the Bible. You know, uh, Noah is a picture of judgment in the Bible, and also in Peter it talks about the heavens and earth, uh, they're reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So... And they have found evidence of these two, flood and fire in Nineveh with the uh, huge parts of the wall washed out and burnt gates. So God, it happened exactly like Nahum prophesied. And in verse 14, let's read verse 14. Here's God giving, issuing the order. We're talking about how. In verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14 said, And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods I will cut off the graven image and, and the molten image, and I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. So here God is issuing the order to end Nineveh. And he addresses the king directly, saying his name will be forgotten. His idol temple will be plundered. And the Lord's going to even dig his grave because he was vile. He was repulsive. It's the opposite, that word is opposite the, the character of God. Can you imagine those words spoken to you? It's, it's, it's speaking directly to their doom. So God is saying, look, Nineveh, you're out of time. The clock struck 12. Judgment is here. I gave you a chance. Jonah preached to you and you repented and no judgment came because you repented. You experienced my mercy, but now you have forgotten me. And, you know, I left you take away the northern kingdom. They probably didn't even know they were, they were uh, an instrument in God's hand in doing that. But he's saying, I have not been beaten by your gods. Your idol temple will be gone. I'm about to take you down and I have issued the order and you're done. That's what verse 14 says. You know, when God's mercy is rejected, God's judgment will come. Today, when, we, when someone spurns the grace of God, he is playing with fire. There's a line that can be crossed, and only God knows where that line is. We have to remember, the same hand that extended the judgment is the same hand that extended the mercy. God, the verdict of, and this verdict of judgment came to Nineveh, but it was good news for the children of Israel. In verse 15, it was good news. It was a comfort to Judah. It says, behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace. O, o Judah, keep thy solemn feasts. Perform thy vows, for, thy, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So this good news was, it was a joyful announcement that Nineveh has fallen. For the children of Israel, this was a comfort. No more taxes, 
They were no more under the thumb of Assyria. They'll be no more under the thumb. And they can celebrate. The oppression was over. You know, there was a very similar verse in, uh, that's given in Isaiah, and that was for the fall of Babylon, which would be later. Very similar verse. And Paul picks it up in the New Testament. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. Paul refers it to the coming Messiah. And this, this is a message. This points to the com coming Messiah. Anybody that has a message of hope and victory as we herald the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And then he, this was good news for the children of Israel. And then in verse 15, the latter part of the, the verse here, he says, because of this good news, he appeals to Judah. He says, oh, Judah, keep the feasts, perform the vows, you know, as, appeal, as an appeal. He says, this good news, now I want you to love me and obey me. It's an appeal to them, to the children of Israel. And then we get to chapter 2. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We're just going to summarize it. And, but it gives a vivid description of how the overthrow would happen. And, uh, and, and actually, before it happens, he's writing like a pre-written pre history. In verse 1, it says, He that dashes in pieces has come up before thy face. Now, that could either be the Lord or the Babylonians, because the Babylonians came in. And then he gives a little sarcasm in verse uh, 1 there. He says, keep, uh, keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. And uh, if you could, that could, he was saying, you know, prepare for battle, man the fort, watch the road, brace yourselves, gather all your strength. There's a little sarcasm here, you know, trying to pre mockingly, you know, prepare for, prepare for battle. Uh, and then it just gives a description of uh, the overthrow. In, verse, in, verses, in chapter 2, in verse 3, he describes the front line. And I'm not going to read all of these verses. But then he describes the charge of the chariots. And the chaos goes along with that in verse 4. It says, The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. So there we can see the, when the walls were breached, the, the, the uh, chariots came in. And it describes here the chariot rage. And then we have the slaughter of the Ninevites. You know, it describes them there in chapter 3. It talks about them being stacked as lumber in the streets. So that was the, describing the slaughter of, the, of the, the, the city. And then we have the, lootering, the looting and the plundering. In verse 9, it says, You take the spoil of silver, the spoil of gold. There is none end of the store and the glory of all the pleasant furniture. So all that they took from others is, is, uh, is taken from them. And verse 9 mentions a pleasant furniture, and I believe it's expensive, luxurious, whatever. It's all gone, all gone. And then in verse 10, describes the response of the people. You know, she is empty and void and waste, and, her, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all thy loins, and the face of them that gather blackness. So the response of the people was, their hearts were melting. They lost courage. These once brave soldiers were now trembling with fear. And 11 and 12, we see the, the lion. It mentions the lion. Now, the lion was a symbol of the Assyrian Empire. It's on their art. It's on their architecture. You know, there's a huge statue of lion like this here, uh, whether it's a lion with a man's head or vice versa, was very common. And they, it, commentaries talk about the lion's hunts. And if we go into Daniel, we see about the lion's den. So lions was something in, uh, important in the Assyrian uh, uh, and the Babylonian empires. But I believe that they acted like lions. They thought themselves of lions, and they acted like lions. I mean, they were helpless to their neighbors. They were brutal. And Nahum's coming out, and he's saying here, you know, like, where are your lions now? I see a den of lions, but they're weak and they're dying. A little sarcasm. 
but you know the lions was something that was strong, but they were they were they were gone. It was over. Then we have the the saddest verses in the Bible. I am against thee. I am against thee. Uh, and it's repeated there in chapter three and verse five. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, I had to think about. We're going to see in the why, but the uh, of their their pride and their. But he, I thought of the verse here in First Peter chapter five, verse five. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You know, when God resists, he's 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 against. But he gives grace to the humble. And I believe these people were very proud of their uh, accomplishments and very proud people. He says, I'm against thee. Sad verses. In, verse chapter, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 13 there at the end of the verse, it says, there'll be no more messenger, no more prophets coming to warn you, no more warning, no more opportunity to respond. You know, they brought it on themselves. And number three... <clears throat> We come to the why. Chapter 3, third point, why. And God gives us the why. We see God giving evidence that justifies the judgment of Assyria. And that's what we need to take note of today. Because God doesn't change. God gives the reasons that this judgment, why Nineveh had to be destroyed. And that's where we need to take pay attention today. Number one, woe to the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city. You know, they were cruel and oppressive, and they had violence. They were barbaric in their behavior. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's said that they would fillet human beings. They would pile decapitated heads on pyramids, 700 high. They were just barbaric. And God's saying he's judging them because of their sheer inhumanity. I believe it's wrong to be barbaric and cruel and torture people. He calls them a bloody city. You know, as I studied this, it helped me understand a little bit why Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh. This is the kind of people that he was going to. You know, it could have been very dangerous to, for him to go, you know, this uh, for his life, to speak the kind of message that he had to the kind of people that were there. Human life was very cheap. His life would have been at stake. But God doesn't take lightly inhumane, barbaric shedding of blood. And, you know, the, the, blood, the blood of the innocent. And our minds are probably all going to our current situation in Ukraine. And I believe God sees what's going on. And God will take care of it in his time, and in his way. Another thing that I've thought of that applies to us here in America is uh, the abortion, innocent blood. You know, in verse 10, in chapter 3, in verse 10, it says her young children were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. It talks about young children were dashed into pieces. They were slaughtering babies. And there's nothing more than we can think of than abortion here in the United States. You know, abortion's been legal for how long? Since 1972. And we're becoming callous to it. It's been that way since I was in grade school. But does God overlook the 60 million babies, or whatever the number is, that were slaughtered in the United States? And what about the later... Uh, I believe it's barbaric to do an abortion in the last trimester that's being done today in a modern world. God doesn't take lightly innocent blood. There's no question it's innocent blood. And for God to be God, I believe he will judge. You know, in, in Cain and Abel, when Cain slew his brother, God came to him and said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cry unto me from the ground. God doesn't wink at innocent blood. And I just went through and just picked out some verses that um, how God notes and remembers and judges innocent blood. 
God notes, he, he doesn't, uh, this is nothing lightly, and they're just going to put up a couple verses to get us thinking. But do a search on innocent blood, and you'll see God's very important to God. In Deuteronomy 19.10, it says, That innocent blood be not shed in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and so, and so blood be upon thee. Uh, moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. And, he sh and shed innocent blood, even the blood of the sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed sacrificed unto idols of Canaan, and in the land was polluted with blood. And yet, uh, two more here. Six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And Isaiah 59, 7, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, destruction are in their paths. I believe God notes, I believe God remembers and judges innocent blood. It's not taken lightly. You know, how long, how long is the kettle going to continue to simmer? And we don't know. But I believe we need to pray for our country. <clears throat> so the bloody city. Number two is lies. It says lies. It was, it's full of lies. Truth was gone. And this rings home to, here too, doesn't it? You know, in our country, we've, I believe it's Simon Schrock that wrote the book there, Where Has Integrity Gone? We went through it here in a, in a Wednesday Bible school one time. Where has integrity gone? And I believe in the first chapter of that book, he says, you know, we've gone from honest Abe to lying Bill. And that's where we are. Lies. Robbery is mentioned. It is full of lies and robbery. Was it all the spoil that was taken that God calls robbery? Maybe for us today it's the covetousness, the sin of covetousness, the desire for more. But they lost it all. They lost it all. Stealing and lies is a prevalent sins in Central America. And I believe they're here as well. And this is the reasons that God brought the judgment upon Nineveh. And fourthly, we see immorality and witchcraft. Two sins that God hates over and over again in the scripture. We can see it repeated and repeated, mentioned and if we, uh, over and over again. And God calls Nineveh a harlot and a witch. In verse 4, let's read verse 4. It says, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. So there was likely prostitution was part of their religion, but God gives this for a reason for their judgment, the immorality and the witchcraft. And if we look across our nation today, we see that that is, as we look at the graphic description of the wickedness of Nineveh, and we compare it, if we're honest, all around us, immorality is rampant here at home in the United States. It's rampant. We live in a sex-crazed world. And that is the reason that God sent this judgment upon Nineveh. I believe it's in one of the, uh, one of the uh, Paul writes, let this not once be named am upon, among you as Christians. So here it says, um, and, and immoral immorality and occultic practices. And I believe occultic practices are on the rise. Even the worship of Satan is on the rise. It's here, occultic practices. In verse 5, uh, he says, I... In, Behold, I'm against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. So here he's saying that he's going to lift, I will lift your skirts over your face and expose you. It's a way of saying I will make you a public disgrace, like a disgraced harlot. 
that was what Nineveh, what Nahum said there, what God said. So, and then we see pride and self-confidence. They had an arrogance about themselves that they didn't care about human life. They had an arrogance about themselves that they thought they were unbeatable, undefeatable, that they were the superpower of the world, and they were at that time. But you know, the verse that says, pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, any world power, what we learn here is any world power can be brought to her knees overnight. They had an arrogance and a pride that led to a self-security. They felt so secure in themselves. I mean, they had that walled city. They had that moat around them. I mean, they felt so secure. They were drunk with security. They thought they were above God. Does that sound like United States? Could God bring the U.S. down overnight? We need to take... We need to take notice of why God destroyed Nineveh. You know, we're thinking about pride and self-confidence. He mentions in verses 8 to 10 other cities that were judged. He mentioned the, uh, uh, in verse 8, Are thou better than populous? No, that would be Thebes that was taken down. And he says, Are you better than they? You know, do you think you're better than they are? And here you can sense the arrogance that they had. They, they, you know, pride has an air about oneself as being better. And it says, are you better than they? They were brought down like you can be brought down to these nations. And what it's saying is take a lesson. And I believe for us today, we need to take a lesson, take a warning. It's a lesson. It's, it, it's talking to us today that we need to take a lesson and this is why God brought them down. And we see, another thing that we see here is God is sovereign in, nation, in nations. You know, we looked earlier about God was sovereign in nature. And this tells us that God is sovereign in, in nations. You know, uh, supreme ruler of nations. And I brought, put the verse up there of uh, Paul. When Paul was preaching at Mars Hill... And he talks about one, one blood, God made everyone alike. One blood, all men to dwell on the face of the earth. And then he says, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. You see, God is in control. God is sovereign in nations. God, is, God is, is sets the bounds and sets the, uh, brings up whom he will, takes down whom he will. And God does not allow arrogant, ungodly, inhumane nations to continue forever. And we see it in history. And we see it here in, this, uh, in, our, in what Nahum is prophesying that, that happened to a T. We see that God is sovereign. He's sovereign in nature. You know, uh, he's sovereign in the, the uh, tornado and the drought and the earthquakes and the volcano. He's sovereign in nature. And he's sovereign in nation. You know, some people think that uh, nature, uh, you know, the natural man would think that nature is just a set of, law, set of laws that just happen. And nations is just good politics or good foreign policy. No. God is in control of nature and God is in control of nations. This judgment of Nineveh is an example for us, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was actual judgment for them, and it's an example for us. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah was actual judgment, an example was written for, for, and most people will know about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's wrath, I believe, is simmering. When will the day, his day of wrath come? One other thing I'd like just to, we're skimming it here, but, you know, I just want to think about the fulfilled prophecy here. In verses 3, verses 11, it says, Thou shall be hid, talking about Nineveh, in the middle of the verse there, Thou shall be hid. And in verse 3, in chapter 3, in verse 7, it says, Nineveh is, will be, is laid waste. And that happened. And that happened, that, that prophecy was fulfilled so thoroughly 
Uh, one commentary likened it to Alexander the Great. 300 years later, was traveling those, and we know Alexander the Great and is conquering everything. He would have marched over that area and not even known that the city of Nineveh was there. It was only until 1840 that the site was discovered. It lay waste for 2,500 years. It was prophesied just as he prophesied. And Zephaniah prophesied the same thing. And he says that it's going to lay wasteland. It's going to lay waste. It's going to be inhabited by the wild animals and the birds. That great city of Nineveh was destroyed just as it fulfilled. And yet last verse, it says... Uh, the, uh, there's no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous, and all that hear the brute or the news, all that hear the news of thee shall clap their hands over thee, for upon whom thou hast not thy wickedness passed continually. So they were annihilated, and the response of the people when they heard the news, it was going to be they were going to clap their hands. It was like a breath of fresh air. Nineveh was gone. Nineveh was gone. The book, this book is all about the judgment of Nineveh. And there's a lot we can learn and apply for today from it. Just like to close with two promises that stand out. <clears throat> we could have built the message all around these promises, but uh, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. You know, God makes wonderful promises to his people. He assures them of his goodness, and he tells them they're going to be safe as long as they trust him. And this is a promise that we can claim today. No matter what we're called to go through, that promise is there for us. If we trust him, if we trust him. And also, behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace. It was good news for them, and it's good news for today. This verse is special. I believe it's the verse that points us to the coming Messiah. Most of the prophets, if not all of them, point to the coming Messiah. Paul, when he quoted this verse, he applied it to the proclamation of the gospel to lost sinners. And it talks about the beautiful feet. Feet usually aren't beautiful, but here, when it's applied to the spreading of the gospel, it makes our feet beautiful. So let's have beautiful feet as we herald the gospel of good news today in the day in which we're living. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and love. We thank you that you are a God of balance. Lord, as we look at the Old Testament, we can see that you have uh, a perfect balance of love and mercy, but you're also just. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in the day and age that we live in, that we would be faithful in being a bright light in a dark community that we live in. Lord, I just pray for our country that we would repent and turn to your ways like Nineveh did. Father, help us to be faithful in, in, in proclaiming the gospel, the good news, to lost sinners. We pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Could we have